has 72 verses. Psalm 78. As I was shutting this psalm throughout the week and reading it over again and again and meditating upon it, I realized that these verses uh, were never intended to be read in great detail, but were to be given a quick read because they fell into certain categories and uh, they give us an overview in the sense of Israel's history. So that's what we will do. I'm going to spend more time on the first eight verses than the rest of the psalm. So I just want you to know that because that those first eight verses serve as an introduction to the psalm and give us the purpose of the psalm. So we have to spend a little bit of time there. The rest of it, though, just sort of falls into place afterwards. So here's how I'm going to outline Psalm 78. Verses 1 through 8. Okay? Verses 1 through 8. God, through Asaph, gives instructions to his people. Okay? So we'll just call this instructions. These would be Asaph's contemporaries. Then, verses 9 through 64 we have uh, Asaph tracing Israel's history of rebellion. Traces Israel's history of rebellion. And uh, the, he traces that history of rebellion so that his audience will learn the lessons from the past. That history serves as a warning not to fall into that same kind of a trap. Okay? And then the final section will be verses 65 to 72, and here, Asaph tells how God chooses David to be a king and serves the people and God faithfully. That's the example that we're to follow. Okay, so that's going to be our outline. So let's look at the first section, which are instructions, which serve as the purpose for the psalm. And we'll just start right at verse 1. Here's what God says. Give ear, O my people, to my law. That's line 1. Second line means basically the same thing. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. This is what the people are to do. They are to listen up. They are to pay attention. They are to heed these instructions. They are to obey these instructions. Notice, God is speaking. See, my law. Words of my mouth. But he is speaking through Asaph, who is a prophet. Okay. Now look at verse 2. God makes an announcement. I will open my mouth in a parable. You're to, you're to listen, and here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old. Now a parable is a comparison. Remember Jesus told parables, and he always made comparisons through parables. And he is going to compare Asaph's generation, who have an opportunity to hear God and heed God's word, with past generations who were rebellious and didn't heed God's word. Okay? And he says he's going to utter dark sayings or uh, hidden meanings. He's going to give Israel's past, and he's going to tell us the meaning behind those events in Israel's past. Things happen all the time, and you don't know why they happen. There's a hidden story behind them. 
Wouldn't you agree with that? When God judges the nation, there's a reason He judges the nation. And if He doesn't tell you the reason, guess what? It remains hidden or dark. So He's going to explain why things happened in Israel's past as they did. Does that make sense to you? Now look at verse 3. Now Asaph picks up and he says about these stories, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. The stories that you're going to hear in the rest of the psalm are familiar stories for the most part. And these aren't going to be things that you've never heard before. And then he makes a promise. Here's what he says. Asaph says this on behalf of the nation. We will hide them. We will not hide them, these stories and these lessons, from our children. Telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. And his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. So he says, we're not going to hide these from our children. We're going to tell our children about these past events so that they can learn the lesson and praise the Lord themselves. Okay? So we're going to pass it on. We're going to pass these stories on. That's his promise. Now why is he going to do that? Why should Israel do that? Look at verse 5. Because, you see that? For he, God, established a testimony in Jacob. In other words, God did things in Israel that should be told. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he did at Mount Sinai, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children. So God gave a law, he gave instructions, and he said, guess what? You're to pass it on to your children. Not only should you obey this law, your children need to obey it, and he's going to be passed on from generation to generation to generation. Pass it on. And then he gives a purpose. Right there in verse 5. That they, and I just read over that, but here's the first that, that they should make known them to their children. That's number one, that they should pass it over. Now look at this next, that, in verse 6. Another purpose for God giving the law. That the generation to come might know them, those instructions, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. So not only should the first generation pass it on to their children, the next generation should pass it on to their children down through the ages. Now we have a third that, third purpose. Verse 7. That they may set their hope in God. You should tell these stories so that each generation in the future will put their faith in God. They'll put their hope in God. They won't put their hope in their own ingenuity. See? Their own uh, contrivances, but they will put their hope in God. That's verse 7. So look what else it says in verse 7. That's what they should do, that they may set their hope in God in the future. And 
forget the works of God. That's why the stories have to be told. If you don't tell the stories about God, guess what the next generation does? It forgets about God. That's why people who have gone through the Holocaust tell the story over and over again. Every generation. And when you say why, they always say the same thing. Lest we forget. So these stories of God's moving in Israel is to be told. And Israel's rebellion is to be told. So that the future generations will not forget. Because otherwise they'll fall into that trap. So it says in verse 7 that they may set their hope in God. That's in the future. They should trust God. And not forget the works of God when God broke in and did great things for their fathers and forefathers. But, here's another thing. Keep his commandments. You're to tell the stories to your children and your grandchildren that they will become obedient to God. If you don't, they're not going to learn it through osmosis. You have to tell them that they will be obedient to God. And, look at verse 8 may not be like their what? Their fathers. So there's a preventative reason for telling these stories that they will not end up being like their fathers in verse 8. And look how he describes their forefathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not set its heart aright. Look at this and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So you're to tell them these stories that they won't fall into the trap that their forefathers did, their ancestors, and become wayward, faithless, disobedient. So, all these stories, these parables, these stories, these comparisons uh, that God is going to reveal in this psalm are intended that we will learn lessons from them. They're not just good Sunday school stories. There's a lesson to be learned. That we will put our hope in God. That we will not forget God. That we will be obedient. And we will not fall into the trap of our forefathers. Now that sets the stage for the entire song. Okay? Now when I think about this, as I was just standing here, I just thought about my own father. Now, my father grew up and lived next door to a church. But as far as I know, he never went to that church. As far as I know, his parents did not go to that church. My grandfather, I don't think, ever stepped foot in the church that I know of. But I know he had a twin brother. And his twin brother's name was Chester. And he was a lay preacher. So, he taught his children the Word of God. I just got an email the other day from a man living out, I forget where he is, Ohio or Indiana, who was related to Chester. And he's a Christian. And that Christian tradition is passed down from Chester, my grandfather's brother, down through the generations until it has reached this man. But my grandfather was not like that. And he didn't teach his father. And guess what? My father didn't teach me. See? So, when I grew up, was I trusting God? 
Did I remember the great stories in the Bible? I didn't know the stories. I didn't know the difference between you know, Noah and Moses. So it wasn't until God captured me. Now, I've taught my children, and guess what? They're teaching their children. And as a result, this affects the future generations. And so this sets the stage, and this is what the Asaph's contemporaries need to learn. Or they're going to fall into a terrible trap. Okay, now we come to the second section beginning in verse 9. And we have examples of Israel's rebellious history. And in verses 9 through 11, we're going to call this examples from Israel's recent rebellious history. Okay? Examples from Israel's recent history. Look at verse 9. And the children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Now, here's an example of a generation that did everything the wrong way. Now, I need to give you a little bit of example, a little bit of explanation here in verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11 are a reference to a battle that hadn't taken that had taken place not too much before the time of Asaph. When King Saul was reigning over Israel, and the battle was with the Philistines. The Philistines invade Israel. And uh, you know the story of how Israel ended up in the Promised Land. They, they get out of Egypt, they cross the desert, they end up in the Promised Land. And God gives land to each of the 12 tribes, right? And so Israel is a nation narrow and long, and, you know, and so there are tribes all throughout the nation of Israel, some way up north, some in the south, some in the central. And uh, what happens is they're being ruled by judges, and then finally the people say, well, we're tired of being ruled by judges, we want a king. And who, does, and who do they want for a king? King Saul. So these verses take place during the time of King Saul. And they're a united nation, a united kingdom under King Saul. Verse 9 tells us that the children of Ephraim, tribes in the north, okay, armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. Turned back. What does that mean? That means they ran for their lives when the Philistines invaded the area. Instead of trusting God, saying, okay, here's the enemy coming to a, toward us. Lord, we're trusting you. you. You open the Red Sea. We're going to trust you to turn back the enemy just like you did Pharaoh's army. Oh, God, we put our faith in you. You're our hope. What did they do? Hey, we can't win this battle. They turned back. You remember King Saul, he went to the witch of Ender and said, what should we do? He ends up killing himself. Look at verse 10. They did not keep the covenant of God. This is why they didn't trust God, because they were very disobedient people. They refused to walk in these laws. You notice that rebellious attitude. You see that? Conscious refusal to walk in these laws. Look at verse 11. Here's what happens when you abandon God's instruction you soon forget his works and his wonders that he had shown them, and as a result, they had no faith. 
The Philistines invade, take over the city of Shiloh, which is where the ark was located at that time. They capture the ark, and the glory of God departs from Israel. That's what this is talking about. Why? Why did this happen? Because, look, they were disobedient, they had no faith, they forgot God. The very things that verses 1 through 9 tell us that we're not to do. Okay? That's an example from a recent history. Now look at an example from ancient history, beginning in verse 12. Marvelous things he did in the sight of his fathers, in the sight of their fathers. Where? In the land of Egypt. Now we're going to go way back into Israel's history, and we're going to see some marvelous things that God did in Egypt, in the field of Zoan, which was the capital where uh, Ramses II ruled. And so God did some great things in the land of Egypt, and even in the capital. Look what he did. He divided the sea, and he caused them to pass through. You're familiar with that. He made the water stand up in a heap. He delivered the people, the Jews. In the daytime, he also led them by the cloud, and at night, by the light of the fire. You're familiar with that. That's what he did in the wilderness. He not only delivered them, he guided them, didn't he? Supernaturally guided them. Okay. Look what else. Verse 15. He split the rocks in the wilderness. He gave them drink in abundance from the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused the waters to run down like rivers. He not only delivered them, he not only guided them, he provided for them. All miraculously. See that? These are wonders. Now look at verse 17. But! You see that? But! They sinned even more against him. What's wrong with these people? We should be saying, what's wrong with us? Say, what's wrong with us? But we think, what's wrong with these people? They, they sinned against him. Look at what else it said in verse 17. By rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. And they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. They were saying, no, no, what you're giving us is too plain. How about some fancy food today? They weren't satisfied with God's provision. The problem that we've had since the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, God said you can eat from every tree in this garden except one. And guess which one they wanted to eat from? They weren't satisfied with that. Say, oh, God knows if you eat from that. And this is, this is the human heart. It's all in their heart. See verse 18, they tested God in their heart. Asking for food of their fancy. Yes, verse 19. They spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? God can do whatever He wants to do. In fact, Psalm 23 says, He prepares the table before me in the presence of my own. That's the difference between the person who has faith, David, in Psalm 23, and these rebellious people. They question, can God die? I don't think he can do that. We better go back to Egypt. Remember when they said that? At least we got fed good there. You have to be crazy. You want to go back and be impressed. Verse 20. Behold, when they said that, behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. And then they said, can he get bread also? 
How about some little, how about some, you know, bread? We want whole wheat, we want a little bit of jam on it, you know, everything. Can you get bread else? Hey, how about some meat? Can he provide meat for his people? And they're doubting God. This is all doubts, you see. Now, they're not happy with what they have. They're not satisfied, so they begin to question and have doubts. Verse 21 gives us the result. Therefore, you see that? The Lord heard this, and he was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, or Israel, and anger also came up against Israel. Now that fire that was kindled against Israel was the fiery serpents that God brought upon the land. And you're going to see this as we read through the passage and we look at a parallel passage. Fire was kindled against Jacob and anger came up against Israel because, verse 22, here's the reason, they did not believe in God. They said they did, but they didn't. They did not trust in his salvation, meaning his deliverance. Yet he commanded the clouds above, even though they didn't believe, he commanded the clouds above, and he opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down manna on them to eat. And he gave them of bread, the bread of heaven, and men made eight angels food. And he sent them food to the full. Can God give us some bread? He says, I'll show you how much bread I can give you. He gave so much that they couldn't even finish eating. They were full. Sated, you know. Even though they had no faith. Look at verse 26. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power he brought... In the south wind, he also rained meat on them. Could God give us meat? He, he rained meat like cats and dogs, you know? Look, rained meat on them. Like the dust. Feathered fowl, like the sand of the seas. Quail. He let them fall in the midst of the camp. All around their dwellings. So they ate and they were well filled. For he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving, their lust, their desires. But while their food was still in their mouth, the wrath of God came down against them and slew even the strongest, the stoutest, the most healthy of them, and struck them down, the choice men of Israel. They got what they wanted, but guess what? They got something else that they didn't want. Sometimes you have to watch out what you want for, because the very thing that you want for is going to be part of the judgment that comes upon you. So it says what he did up there in verse 21 and 22 is he sent fire. These are the fiery serpents. Okay? Now, I want you to keep your finger here, and I want you to move back to Numbers chapter 11, where that story is told. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Okay? 
and go to Leviticus, or Numbers rather, chapter 11. Sometimes God gives you what you want. And you'll wish afterwards that you didn't get it. Okay? Now when you get to Numbers 11, find, go to the end of the chapter, and we're going to look at verse 31. You're going to see this is an exact replica of what's being said, or a parallel, I should say, what's being said in Psalm 78. So look what it says. Numbers 11:31. Now a wind went out of God, and he brought quail from the sea. Is that what we've been talking about? This is the whole same story. It tells how they filled the surface of the ground. Look at verse 32. The people stayed up all day, all night, all the next day. Man, they gathered that quail. He who gathered least gathered ten homers. I mean, they had barrels full of quail. They spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it chewed, before, before it chewed, before they could chew it, the wrath of God of the Lord was aroused against the people. And the Lord struck the people with a great plague. Right while it was still in their mouth. Before they could finish chewing it and swallowing it. Okay. So he called the name of that place. Very interesting. God calls the name where those people fell with the food in their mouth. Kibroth Hateavah. If you have a footnote there, you'll notice that that is translated for you. It means the graves of craving. They craved for food there, and that's where their graves was. Because they buried the people who had yielded to the craving. And the other passage talks about the fiery serpents. And so here we have this judgment that falls on the people because they craved something. They weren't satisfied with what they had. They doubted God. He showed them what he could do, but judgment came with it. They got their cravings, but they also ended up in the grave. Now, when that happened, let me ask you this. Do you think the Jews learned their lesson? I think that should get your attention, shouldn't it? But it doesn't get your attention. Look back in Psalm 78, at verse 32, and here's what it says. This is great. I love it. Verse 32. In spite of this, they still sin. Now, remember he said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to explain dark sayings to you. I'm going to I'm going to give you the hidden meaning behind things. So you want to know why they fell and died. It was because they craved something that God really didn't want for them. And so why did these people die? He's telling him why he died. And it says, and yet still they, they continued to sin. And they did not believe in his wondrous works. Now I tell you, if all the quail came down, all the bread come down, one thing I think I would do is believe in his wondrous works. But that's if you're thinking clearly. If you're thinking with a rebellious heart, you can have every other explanation. You can come up with every other explanation. You know, UFO dropped it out of the sky. Any, anything, but you're not going to give God credit. They did not believe in his works. Look at verse 33. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility, meaning their life was just wasted. Forty years in the desert. 
11-day trip from Egypt to the Promised Land on foot. Took them 40 years to get there. Just funeral journey, going around in circles. And that's what he'll do. He'll give you the desires of your heart, but you may have a futile life. You may end up spinning your wheels. And their years, it says at the end of verse 33, in fear. And when he slew them, then they saw him. And they returned, and they saw earnestly for God. Now, don't think that they changed. It says they sought earnestly for God, but they sought earnestly for God for the wrong reason. They sought earnestly for God because they wanted to escape judgment. A lot of people say, I came to Christ. Why did you come to Because I didn't want to go to hell. That's the wrong reason for turning to the Lord. They turned, but it wasn't a real turning. It wasn't a valid turning. It was a repentance that leads to death. Paul talks about a repentance that leads to death. Yes, you turn and you say you want God, you're seeking God, but really what you're seeking is self-preservation. You don't want to die, you don't want to go to hell, and so that's, that's not seeking God, that's seeking your own self-interest. And they did that, earnestly. Hebrews said, some people sought him with tears. But it didn't produce salvation. Look what it says in verse 35. Then they, they remembered that God was their rock. And the Most High God, their Redeemer. Yeah, they, they, they gave lip service to that. Nevertheless, you say, don't read those two sentences without the next. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. Look at this. They lied to him with their tongue. We're seeking you, Lord. Look what we're doing. We're cutting this down. We're giving sacrifices. Hey, that was a phony baloney show. How do you know that? Well, the next verse tells you how do you know that. For their heart was what? Not steadfast with him. Nor were they faithful to the covenant. They, this is hypocrisy at its best. They became very religious. But their heart was far from God. But, and this shows you how compassionate God is. This is very interesting. But God, but he being full of compassion... He said, okay, I'm going to overlook that. He forgave their iniquities. He didn't destroy, destroy everybody at that time. He could have destroyed the whole bunch, but he didn't. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away. It means he should have. He was angry because they weren't doing right, but he turned it away. And did not stir up all of his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh. And he remembered something else. He remembered a breath that passes away and doesn't come again. He said, you know something? They're going to die anyway. Just let them live until they die. In futility. Going around in circles. 
It's not even worth me to strike him dead. So he allows the hypocrites to continue to live, and they think they're getting away with murder, but in the end, they die. So that's the example from ancient history. Now he gives us, Asaph gives us other examples from history. Look at verse 40. They often provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. See, they didn't change. Yes, again and again they tempted God. And they limited the Holy One of Israel. You can limit God. There's a lot God would love to do for you in your life. But because of rebellion, you grieve Him, you tempt Him, you limit Him. And then look what it says. They did not remember His power. It's His wondrous works. They did not remember the day He redeemed them from the enemy. They just allowed those great miraculous interventions to pass through their mind, they became forgetful. The very thing that Asaph says that we're not to do, which is to forget God, we're always to remember his thing, his wondrous works. They did not do that. Verse 43. When he worked his signs in Egypt, they forgot about that. When he worked his wonders in the field of Zoan, they forgot that. Turned their rivers into blood, their streams that they could not drink. Remember when they the water became blood and the Egyptians couldn't drink it. He sent swarms of flies among them and devoured them, the frogs, and destroyed them. He gave their crops to the caterpillar, plagues, and their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines and their hail, their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle for the hail, their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast them the fierce, he cast on them the fiercest, fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, trouble, by sending angels of destruction among them. How he sent the death angel among the Egyptians. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death. He gave their life over to the plague. He destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt and the first of their strength in the tent of Ham. Throughout history, God delivers, 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 and guess what? This generation, they just forget. They don't even hold God in their consciousness. Seven of the ten plagues are mentioned there, by the way, right in that passage. Look at verse 52. Now, how about his people? Well, he made his own people to go forth like sheep. He guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them to safety so that they did not fear as long as you keep your eyes on God, you don't have to worry. He'll take care of you. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. The Red Sea came down on their enemies. He brought them to his holy border, the promised land, the mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, the Canaanites, all the nations that were in that land that he promised. He drove them out. He allotted them an inheritance. By survey, he divided the land among the twelve tribes. He made the tribes of Israel dwell in tents. They were no longer wanderers. They had places to live. 
Now they're in the promised land, and obviously now things will get better, right? Now they'll be good people, right? Look what it says, verse 56. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep His testimony, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. When you pull their bow back instead of hitting the target, it just twists. And that's what they were. They were twisted. They made promises. They didn't keep their promises. They didn't keep their vows. Verse 58, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. That's the idolatry that they practiced. High places where you put up little statues and worship false gods. They moved into jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious. And he, he abhorred Israel. Look at that. He abhorred Israel. So that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. Now we're going back to that original battle. When the people turned their back when the Philistines invaded. He forsook the tabernacle, the ark. The tent that he had among the people where he dwelt up there in Shiloh. And he delivered his strength into captivity. And his glory, which is where that his glory settled between the wings of the cherubim, the ark, says he delivered his glory into the enemy's hand and the Philistines captured the ark. And he also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance, meaning Israel. And the fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. So, we have this whole history of Israel. Of them faithless, not remembering his works, forgetting and in a state of rebellion. These are the stories. These are the comparisons that God gives through Asaph to Asaph's contemporaries who are living during the time of King David. So that they can learn why this happened to Israel. What's the hidden story behind the fall of, and the losing the battle with the Philistines? Here's the hidden story. Here's the back story. And now we come to the third section of the psalm where God raises up someone who is faithful and will serve him. A man who has a heart after God. King David, look at verse 65. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep. One day he woke up and said, I'm just going to, things are going to change now. Like a mighty man who shouts because of one. And he beat back his enemies. And he put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. That means he was finished with those tribes up north who turned and ran the other way instead of trusting him. But, verse 68, he chose the tribe of Judah in the south. Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary 
there on Mount Zion. King David puts the tent there. He gets the, the Philistines return the ark. Verse 69, he built the sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has established forever. And so he now favors Judah, the tribe of Judah. And his presence is now on Mount Zion, not up in Shiloh, among the northern tribes. Look at verse 70. He also chose David. The people chose Saul, he chose David. And he took him from the sheepfolds. And you know that story when Samuel was told to go find the next king, the future king of Israel. And he went to the household of Jesse. He lined up all these sons, and God said, none of those. Samuel said, don't you have anybody else? Oh, my kids out there take care of the sheep. Well, bring him in. Oh, he's just a little. Bring him in. God says, that's the one. And Samuel anoints David king years before he becomes king. So here's the story. That's the story right there in verse 7. And from following the Hughes that had young, he brought him, David, to shepherd Jacob, Israel, his people. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. And he guided them by the skillfulness of his hand. And Israel entered a golden age under King David. And now God is warning those people living under King David, don't fall into the patterns of your forefathers or the same thing that happened to Saul and that generation is going to happen to you. David was not perfect. He committed sins, but his heart was never far from the Lord. And so they entered this golden age. How long did it last? Not long. Because when David died, who became king? Solomon. Ended up in idolatry. The kingdom ended up divided between north and south. The Syrians came down and destroyed the north in 722. The Babylonians came down and destroyed the southern kingdom in 586, 587. The people were put in captivity. They were in captivity for 70 years. The Persians took over the world and allow the small little remnant of Jews to go back to the promised land. And they rebuilt this temple, but they weren't faithful, were they? They became just as disobedient as the others, forgetting God. And Rome comes along, and guess what? They're under subjection once again. And in 70 AD, Rome destroys the temple, and what happens to the Jews? They're just got it. So, God realizes this. He establishes a new covenant with Israel, which will include bringing in Gentiles, faithful Gentiles and a group of faithful Jews, and bring them together into a new entity, the church. And that's what we are. And now that message is for us. We're called, I'm called, not to follow the example of my father and my grandfather. But I'm called to have faith in God, to remember the past, to testify and share it with my children, 
pass it on and never forget it. And when we do that, when we learn the lessons of the past, Put it this way, do it negatively. If you don't learn the lessons of the past, you do that one, then what happens? You're going to repeat the failures of the past. So we need to learn the lessons of the past. We need to realize that when we forget God, and it's so easy to do it. It's easy to forget God during the day. It's easy to forget God for a week. It's easy to forget God for a month. Forgetting God leads to doubt, because when the crisis comes, God's not in your consciousness and doubt. And then you begin to say, why doesn't God, just like they did, do this? And then that leads to rebellion, and rebellion leads to judgment. These are lessons for us, because these psalms were read in the early church, and they've been read in the church ever since. You know, I said something as I was studying this the other day, I put something on Facebook, and the statement was something like this, based on this lesson. And what I said was this, if you're not grateful for what you have, think about what you got right now. If you're not grateful for what you have, what makes you think that you'll be grateful if you get more? They weren't grateful for what they had. And when they got more, they weren't grateful. And we think, if I only get a little more, then I will A, B, C, and D. And that's just not the way it is. I had a friend who said, you know, I never got over where I came from. I've never forgotten where I came from. I never forgot what God saved me from. See, he never forgot. And because he never forgot, he was always grateful for the salvation that he had. And we must not forget. We must always remember his wonders, how he's delivered in the past. Jim Lang, how he delivered them. Can he do it for you? If he did it for Jim Lang? Don't have doubt. Have faith. And then based on that faith, act in obedience and pass it on to your children and grandchildren. And let's have generations of followers of Christ who are obedient to his word. And when crisis comes, the first thing we think of is God, not a lawyer or whatever the situation is, or a doctor. Although God uses all these people. But the first thing that comes to your mind should be what? Lord... We thank you for this song, which is a great song that tells us that we need to learn from the past. We need to learn from other people's mistakes that we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Help us, Lord, to be a different generation. Help us to be people who walk by faith. In Christ's name, amen. <laughs>